So if I want to change agriculture, I cannot use the same tools that created the industrial system. And, and I cannot continue with, the, um, with, the, with market economics as the my, as, uh, and profit maximization and unlimited economic growth as, as, as the main goal, you know? Because you see, when you do agroecology, when you do the real organic, um, you are capturing carbon as a consequence of your management. You're not doing that because you want to get in and ca- to, to catch carbon to get into the markets. This is logical, obviously. If you, if you add organic matter to your soil, if you have crop diversity, you're going to capture a lot of carbon. That's a consequence of that. And then the governments should compensate you for that service. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on a well-managed pasture. You just heard from Miguel Altieri, professor of agroecology at UC Berkeley and a PhD entomologist whose longtime work was focused on the biological control that keep pests in check on organic farms. My co-director, Dave Chapman, spoke with Miguel last fall to learn more about the growing global movement that is agroecology and how it's aligned with communities and the preservation of traditional knowledge. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast, and I am very pleased today to be talking with Miguel Altieri. Um, Miguel is a professor uh, at maybe emeritus now at Berkeley, and um, Miguel has had a huge impact on the world. He has written many books and articles and publications uh, about agriculture, and especially about agriculture in Latin America, if that's right, Miguel. And I'm very pleased to talk with you today. Elliot Coleman actually connected us. And um, he said, you really are the one to talk to about agroecology. So welcome. I'm I'm really glad that that we're here together. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So uh, I I have followed some of your work. But I, I've asked you to speak to me as if I don't know much, because honestly, it's amazing. But most people in America really don't know anything about agroecology, which is a major world movement. How many how many farmers would you say have embraced, uh, would consider themselves to be part of the agroecological movement? Well, the whole Via Campesina, which is the largest peasant movement in the world, embraces agroecology. So right there, we're talking about more than 100 million farmers. 100 million. Yeah. Okay. Are distributed not only in Latin America, but Asia, Africa, and including North America, where you have a Via Campesina chapter in the U.S. and also in Canada and Europe. Yes. So the 100 million Peasant farmers have embraced this and are part of a, a pretty active movement. And not only have most Americans not heard of it, but most American farmers have not heard of it. So I I think it's such an important conversation that we're going to have. Um, how how was uh, agroecology born as a movement? I'm sure that the farming practices have been around for a very long time. But it became a, a political movement just the way organic became a political movement long after the, the practices were evolved. So what's the history of agroecology? Well, agroecology, <clears throat> it depends on who you talk to, because the Europeans claimed that there was a Russian scientist and then some Italian scientists that used the word agroecology back in the uh, early 1900s. But they really were talking about crop ecology, um, how the crops adapt to the environment and things of that nature. They were good contributions, but agroecology, the way we see it today, emerged, in my opinion, in Latin America. First, because of NGOs that were working with, uh, with small farmers that had been neglected by the governments, trying to come up with uh, with approaches of to rural development that would be that would be grassroots based and that would provide autonomy to farmers and also food sovereignty, and and then agriculture started growing, 
at the beginning, obviously, all the organizations, the universities, FAO, and all these organizations that now are embracing agroecology would reject it at that time. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about 1982 when my first book on agroecology came out. Although there are many other books that came later, Steve Gleesman, for example, is a major uh, player in agroecology, um, but his book came much later. And um, at that time, they ignored us. They tried us. They treated us like hippies or communists or some, something like that. And then agroecology kept growing, um, despite the fact that they didn't receive support from universities or foundations or anything like that. And then they started ignoring us. Okay. And, uh, and then after that, they, they started combating us because um, it started growing and it was dangerous. So they noticed, you know, conven the conventional system, the conventional establishment noticed us. And um, so they would say, they would argue against it. You cannot feed the world with agroecology. Agroecology only does produces low production levels and um, it's uh, not scientific, etc., etc. And then, but agroecology kept growing. And at that time, Via Campesina back about maybe 15 to 20 years ago, which was basically a movement struggling for land access, found agroecology. And agroecology was very, um, very compatible with the movement, with the social movement. I'm talking about rural social movements, peasant movements that were looking for, for land access because agroecology doesn't question traditional knowledge. It, it's, it's, uh, it embraces it and builds upon it. And it's economically viable because um, it doesn't promote external inputs of any kind. It's just uh, basically working with the resources that the farms have and promoting ecological processes that would sponsor soil fertility and pest control. So it, it, it enhanced the autonomy of farmers, their technological sovereignty. And, um, and also it was socially activating. It requires social organization because the way agroecology spreads is through farmer to farmer, through a meth pedagogical methods of um, horizontal methods of pedagogy, very much based in Paulo Freire's teachings. I don't know if you're familiar with Paulo Freire was a major Brazilian educator that, uh, that he wrote the, the book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And he came up with very participatory methods, horizontal methods of transfer of knowledge and practices and experiences among people. So um, that's how agroecology got into the hands of social movements. And, and then they also, since um, Via Campesina and other social movements have been promoting the concept of food sovereignty, agroecology was the, the technological pillar of food sovereignty. You know, it made sense. So that's that's how it, it came about. And today it, it's, a, it's a major social movement. Um, people say that it's a science, it's, it's a set of practices, and it's a movement. So that's what agroecology is, a science that combines modern knowledge that we learn in the universities, soil science, entomology, plant pathology, social sciences, ecology, etc., And then the traditional knowledge, which we in Latin America and other countries in the South have been blessed of still having microcosms of traditional agriculture the way it was practiced 5,000 years ago. So that knowledge of the farmers is very important in agroecology. And what agroecology does creates an, a bridge in order to create a dialogue of wisdoms from which emerge the principles of agroecology, which are ecological principles and also social principles. So could you could you tell me what the principles, the core principles of agroecology are? Well, the course, the, the core principles, the ecological principles, the first one is obviously everything that has to do with the uh, enhancement of soil fertility and soil quality through recycling of organic matter, through increasing nutrient cycling and enhancing biological activity. Um, that's the first principle. Uh, the and second that, 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 that principle would be very much in alignment with the principles of organic farming. Of oh, yeah. Real, real organic farming. Yeah. So you see what happens? <laughs> well, I'm going to go through the principles and, and then I'm going to tell you, because people ask me, what is the difference between organic and agroecology or regenerative or or biodynamic or, you know? Yeah. You know, 
Okay, so the principles are basically everything has to do with, with enhancing soil, soil quality and, and life and fertility um, uh, through recycling of biomass and nutrients and organic matter and all that. The second principle is breaking the monoculture by promoting diversity. Temporal diversity through rotations and things of that nature. Then spatial diversity through polycultures, agroforestry systems, things, systems that peasants have used for thousands of years. And they have stood the test of time. <laughs> so uh, the third principle is not to, is to avoid all losses uh, in terms of nutrients and water and sun energy or agrobiodiversity. And basically just avoid losses of th those resources that are crucial by, by promoting conservation practices of water and, and seeds and soil, etc. cetera. Uh, the other principle is uh, promoting the synergies between the components, because it's not just adding diversity per se. You have to add diversity that is going to complement each other through interactions, because that's what promotes the, the processes, you see? What, what we say is you, you have the principles. The principles take the form of practices. For example, green manuring or cover cropping, it would be a practice, okay? That would reflect which principle, the principle of recycling and, and, and enhancing organic matter in the soil. What are the processes that result from that is basically soil fertility and enhancement, biological activity of the soil, nutrient cycling. Those are the processes. So agroecology promotes an agriculture not based on inputs, but based on processes. Mm. So those processes are biological, natural regulation of pests, biological regulation of pest diseases and weeds, uh, soil fertility enhancement through biological activity, uh, soil uh, crop productivity through the interactions that happen between the different crops, the facilitation processes. For example, when you combine corn and beans, there's all kinds of facilitation, complementarity that act happens. And, and so <clears throat> those are basically the principles is to, is to enhance efficiency, diversity, synergy, and, and interactions. So Agroecology then is a science that has these principles and you and we have development methodology because there is a conversion process. Let's say a farmer wants to, to, to move and apply the agroecological principles, then you can actually serve the farms with a methodology and say, okay, you're following the principles correctly. The processes are, are starting to function correctly. So you're going in the right direction. So, so agroecology is the science of understanding agroecosystems. It's like ecology. Ecology is a science that you can understand how the tundra works in the Arctic, which is an ecosystem, and the tropical rainforest. The principles are the same. The processes are the same. The structure of the systems are different and the function are different. So agroecology is a, is a science that can study any agroecosystem, any farming system. Um, a transgenic agroecosystem, you can go in there and say, okay, this system doesn't work. It's not based on the principles of agriculture because of this and this and this and this and this. You can go to an organic farm, which follows all the precepts of organic farming, which I have worked with here in California for many years with many organic farmers, with biodynamic farmers also. And they follow the principles of organic and biodynamic, which I respect. And I, of course, respect the teachings of all the, all the teachers of, of those fields. But I can go to that farm and say, you know, from, a, from the biodynamic perspective, based on the principles of Steiner, this farm is working correctly according to, to your assessment. But agroecologically speaking, it's not. So you can optimize it and still be biodynamic. Or, or I can go to a farm here in, in Salinas and find a lettuce monoculture or a strawberry field in the coast of California here that is organic certified, but it's a monoculture based on input substitution. Yes, but but that would be an example of uh, something that is certified organic, but is not really organic. Yeah, in, in my opinion. Yeah. So that th I think that that's a conversation, and I suspect we're going to be having the same conversation about agroecological soon enough yeah. that people will be claiming it. Yeah, well, many are already. Many already. Are, you, you know, the only are... farmer I've met in California who claimed mm -hmm. to be agroecological 
was uh, a hydroponic marijuana producer. <laughs> and I got a tour of their place and they said, this, everything we do is completely based on the principles of agroecology. Okay. And I thought, I don't think so. No. <laughs> well, if you apply our methodology where you go and say, okay, are you following the principles? The hydroponic system would not have biological activity in the soil, would not have a soil strata where to build all the, all the microbial diversity, which actually has a huge impact on, on crop growth and crop health and on, on, on the taste of food also, on the yes. content of anti, uh, antioxidants and so on. There's a lot of research showing that. So anyway, um, so what I'm saying, um, without contradicting the principles of organic or biodynamic or regenerative, <laughs> uh, agroecology is a science that can optimize those systems. I think it still sounds to me like if I looked at at real organic, I looked at the roots of organic, what it's intended to be. They're very similar in their looking at the ecology of the whole. Right. And and uh, I think the thing is that uh, I think that the context in which they evolved are different because organic was born in England, obviously, and in Europe, and the same biodynamic, the same thing in Germany. And, and uh, the social and cultural context was different and the ecological context, you know. Uh, agriculture was born in, in Latin America for the purpose of working with poor, small farmers, but that had a huge traditional knowledge and cosmology. And also in the context of a political context that also uh, <clears throat> gave agriculture a political perspective in the sense that it's a transformational science that wants to change the existing food systems to make them more socially just, but not by working within the, the rules of capitalism, but basically changing the system in a radical way. Yes. So yes. I think that yeah. the origins, the origins are, uh, provide a major difference and you can find commonalities in the ecological principles, but um, agriculture is transformational, it's not reformist. Yes, it doesn't accommodate to the existing system. It, it wants to change the existing system. It wants to change the structures of power that maintain the dominant food system, the corporate control of the, of the food system, and so on. I, I, I agree completely, and I do think that when when organic came to the United States, and uh, it kind of it was here for a little while about a decade and then it exploded in during the Vietnam War and after and i think in that period it also gained as a movement uh an int a transformational intent and yeah. i i think that that much of that intention has been lost in the last 15 years as the government took over and people became more passive and it, it became more of a business. And then as a business, it became more corporate. But I think that that's what the Real Organic Project is trying to do is, is say, well, wait a minute, there are some important reasons that we came to this that are being lost. And I think we can look to agroecology as a movement that is still not for a moment forgotten that. So um, let's talk about that. Yeah, another major difference is that you see the um, the rural population is still dominant in Latin America, as opposed to the U.S., where you have less than one percent of population farming. So, in order to change the food system here, you need to have urban movements that are going to play a major role, not the rural movements. The rural movements are important, but are a minority. Whereas in Latin America, it's the other way around. You have huge rural movements that are promoting changes. Uh, and there has to be a, a, an association uh, with, the, with the urban movements. Yes. Yeah. So, um, well, I, I want to really talk about that. But first, let me just check in. Would you, uh, agroecology continues to grow in Latin America and, and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. in places where the majority of people still are in the land, in the countryside, farming mm -hmm. and yeah. feeding the local community. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's interesting to me is when a movement becomes outward facing, 
And, and when it's, it's more, uh, you know, one of the things that has happened with organic is uh, at a certain point, when I, when I first became an organic farmer, there was no organic market. Mm-hmm. And, and we grew that way because we believed in it, not because somebody would pay us to do it that way. And there, there was no, no market demand. That has grown in the last 40 years, very much from when I started. And now there's a strong economic incentive to become organic. There's also a strong corporate presence sort of driving the people out of the very market that they created. In agroecology, is is there a market demand or is this really just farmers and peasants talking to each other saying, this is how we want to farm. This is how we take care of our community. Yeah, um, there's not there's no label of agroecology, and uh, and most of the uh, the food that is produced is to feed the local populations, but also the urban populations. Because in the world, although peasants control thirty percent of the land, they produce seventy percent of the food that we eat. You know, uh, this is this is FAO statistics actually, and uh, and and corporate agriculture produces biomass basically, and it only occupies 70% of the land, produces 30% of the food. And most of the food that they produce are three, is corn, wheat, and rice, which provide 50% of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the calories that we eat today. And so um, what happens is, is that agriculture is more um, linked to the local markets, and to in, uh, but markets that are based more on what we call in, in Spanish, economia de solidaridad, solidarity economics. There are different types of arrangements that that people have in which there are economic transactions, but the main purposes are um, are the main driver is solidarity between consumers and producers. I know farmers, for example, that in Colombia where they they produce food that they sell at the price of seven years ago because they say, look, since I save fifty percent of the I, of the cost of production with agroecology. Second, I produce all my food <laughs> for my family. The, the excedent, I can sell it to these poor people, which are my clients, at the price that, it's, uh, that they can afford, because these are poor people that make you know $2 a day or something like that. So the, that's an example of solidarity. And then the other thing is that there are governments, certain governments, uh, for example, in the case of Brazil during Lula year, not now with, with this Bolsonaro guy, uh, hopefully, Lula will win at the end of the of the of the month again. But there are many countries that have also promoted policies of um, of promoting um, what they called, um, uh, for example, uh, institutional markets. That is, the the, the government buys thirty percent of the food of all the or small farmers that are doing agriculture to serve in the schools and hospitals. So it guarantees a certain price and a certain amount of food that is bought by the governments in order to sell, serve the social markets without having farmers to have to struggle to compete in the markets that are biased against them anyway. Because unfortunately, as in the US, I mean, when I used to, now I'm emeritus, but when I used to teach agroecology, I used to send my students uh, to do different projects. And one of them was to see how many minority people were in the Berkeley's market, far- farmer's market. And there were always none or maybe 1% because of the cost of the food. I mean, uh, that's a major driver uh, for people, especially minorities, to, to access food. It's, it's not that there's no food out there, it's that the price is so high. So... This is this is what happens with organic in many in many in many countries. Unfortunately, it's more expensive than 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 than, uh, than conventional. Probably that's the price it should have, because uh, you know cheap food is is easy to come by. But what about the access of people to this food? Yeah. So, so that's a major element of food sovereignty. Food sovereignty. Okay, let's talk about food sovereignty. I mean, one of the things that you just brought up a big issue, and, and it's an accusation that's made about organic. Well, yes, that's food for the rich. You know, poor people can't afford that food. And I say, 
well, wait a minute, that's actually what the food really costs to, to produce. And so that the people who are growing the food can get paid a living wage. So yeah. the problems of poverty aren't the fault of the organic farmer. They are the problems that we all have to deal with. So yeah. talk about food sovereignty, Miguel. What does that mean to you? Well, food sovereignty is there's food security means that you have access to food because you have money. You could be a country that can import all the food. I mean, the Midwest of the U.S., I imagine, is food is food secure because they can buy the, the produce that comes from California and other states because they don't produce anything there in the, you know to, to feed themselves. So they buy it. So they are food secure, but they're not food sovereign. Food sovereign means that you have um, the capacity to produce the food that you need for your community, for your country, for, for your region. And that's the priority. First, feed the, the local people. And, and after, whatever is uh, surplus, you can sell in the markets, in the international market or, or export or whatever. But the main priority is to feed the local people with agricultural technologies and with access to land. Because you see, the problem is that in order to have farmers produ to produce food, they have to have access to land. And I, I, I know that in this country, I, I've read, for example, the declaration of the Young Farmers of America. I went to their webpage <laughs> and they say that the main problem they have is access to land. So, yeah. uh, and a lot of people here in California that want to be farmers, young people, many of my students wanted to be farmers, but they couldn't afford it. Yes. They, could, they can't afford the, the cost of, of land. So if you want to have food sovereignty in a country, you have to distribute land because land has a social function. You see, uh, land has to, uh, arable land I'm talking about, class one, class two soils. The social function is to produce food. And if that land is not producing food, then it has to be distributed to those that want to produce food. That's a very contentious um, um, issue because a lot of people oppose land reform. So this has to happen, uh, you know, here here in, in the United States. Um, there's no there's no there's no reason why there there's so much land concentration. I mean, the the, the name of the game is get big or get out. My last number that I saw is that 219 farmers go out of business every day. Yeah. And the big ones are the ones that are getting big and they get big because they get subsidies from the government and they take advantage of the economics of scale. So so uh, a lot of the economics of scale has to do with influence over programs that subsidize them. Well, 10%, 65% of the subsidies in this country go to the 10% the largest farmers. You know, the farm bill. <laughs> And the small farmers don't get anything, you know, and the, those are the ones that are saving biodiversity, that are, you know, sequestering carbon, that are producing the local food, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't get any any compensation, no incentives, yeah. no recognition for the ecological services that they provide for humanity and for society. When you look in the United States, I, I, I hear that the problems are very different in every region. In the United States, do you uh, there there is a large organic movement here, and there's a very large uh, millions and millions of of eaters who who support that. And I believe they support real organic. There there are people who don't care; they would just like it as cheap as possible. But I think there are millions of people who actually do want to uh, do it just in the way you talked about that they want to support the kind of farming that that uh, is done in the way that they would they would believe in. Yeah. And I think often those people are willingly spending their money, and sometimes their hard-earned money that they don't have a lot of, in order to do that, and they're being misled. They 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 get tricked um, by the big corporations that are moving in, moving into organic. Yeah, yeah consumers, consumers, you know, uh, edu educating consumers is fundamental. Because eating is an ecological act and a political act. And every time I support the big supermarkets and the big farmers, I'm promoting the projects of death. 
And when I support small farmers, local markets, etc., locally produce food, I'm support. I'm promoting resiliency and and sustainability in my communities. I'm I'm promoting life, and uh, and I think that people need to understand that. But it's not just that the role of the good food that is produced by organic farmers or agroecological farmers, which is very important for health and all that, for the health of the planet, for the health of the people. But there are other services that come along. For example, here in California. In the, in, the, in the 1980s, there were a bunch of rural sociologists that did a study and found out that in the south of California, that towns that were surrounded by large farms, as opposed to towns that were surrounded by small farms, had more crime, more violence, more family breakdowns, more drug addiction than towns were surrounded by small farmers because of the social relations that happened between the producers and the consumers. Or That's towns- the Goldschmidt thesis? Yeah. yeah, and then in, in Brazil they did studies where they found that in in Sao Paulo state, the towns that were surrounded by sugarcane plantations, which there are many, were five to ten degrees centigrade hotter than towns that were surrounded by small farms, wow. because of the albedo effect. So you can see that there are other services that come with with uh, with with the with the <clears throat> with the, um, the um, matrix of, of farming that surrounds your city. You, the water quality of your city is going to be different. The air quality is going to be different. The, the, the temperature is going to be different. The social fabric is going to be different. Yeah. So it's not just the food, which is very important. You know, We always focus on the food. This food is, is free of pesticides, has more antioxidants, more vitamins, et cetera, et cetera. It's good for the environment. That's all fantastic. But we forget about the social services and the cultural services and the economic services that come along with agroecological farming. Yeah, with very, very real impacts. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting because, of course, there are a lot of uh, unseen impacts just because of the quality of food. And yeah. we know that if you eat bad food, you 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 are sicker. But uh, even, even the pandemic that we're living today. Uh, is related to the model of agriculture. Because you see, as we advance with monocultures, uh, we destroy the, the natural forest or the natural vegetation that surrounds the farm. Within those habitats, there's a lot of wildlife, you know, bats and birds and armadillos, et cetera, that, that coexist with, with, with thousands of viruses. And those, but they're contained within those habitats. They're like ecological firework, fire uh, breaks. But when you destroy, then they get in touch with, uh, they get in contact with, with rural communities, with cattle. And that's the basis for zoonotic diseases transmission. Yeah. So can I, can I, this is great. Can I, for a moment though, uh, check in the, the symposium that we're doing this year is taking a real look at regenerative agriculture and organic agriculture. And we asked the question, is organic regenerative? And is regenerative organic? Now, both regenerative and organic, and I think agroecological too, are now facing real challenges from the very systems that they were meant to be alternatives to. And I know that organic has, I've, I've worked in this for years now of, uh, that's why we call it the real organic project because we believe that organic means something and it's that meaning is being lost through the the way the USDA is interpreting it and 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 enforcing it do you believe that real organic let's say the, uh, you know Elliot the, the the organic of Elliot Coleman would you say that that is regenerative it has to be <laughs> in order for for we have to regenerate soil we have to regenerate life or restore if you want to call the name it doesn't matter you know terminology but you have to to have um to build the the soil first of all the life in the soil as as a, as, a, as a pillar and then the, the biodiversity that that will go along with that the agrobiodiversity that will go along with that and that implies regeneration restoration whatever you want to call it yeah. so it's a it's a principle it's a principle. Regeneration is a principle, I think, that is, has to underline any agriculture that is going to be 
um, the the next um, the agriculture that is going to be able to withstand the crisis that we're facing. We, we we are facing. We will be facing. Well, climate change is one of them. I, I I agree with you. Let me ask you the other side of that question because regenerative, the term regenerative agriculture has exploded in the last five years mm-hmm. and almost every big agriculture big food company is now embracing that term <laughs> well that that's a problem you see the issue is the cooptation of the terminology and this is happening with agroecology uh fao uh which fought agroecology for years you know in the last 10 years has embraced agroecology but what we call the the junk agroecology you know because basically what they do is they take certain principles especially the technological ecological principles and they leave out all the social and political dimensions they don't want to talk about land reform they don't want to talk about peasant autonomy none of that so I, I understand that there are people that have pushed the term ter- uh, regenerative and also the term organic, you know, uh, based on the on the ter- on the on the philosophy of the pioneers, you know, the true spirit of that, and um, and that got co-opted. But you see, we have to. There's nothing we can do against that. I mean, I, I have no control whether FAO takes agroecology and and uses the term as they fit. But what I can do is to stay true to the principles of agroecology and never lose the, the, the political and social dimension of agroecology, which is something that they will not use because will go against the systems that they want to promote. So I think that that was, has kept agroecology very, very alive in Latin America. We have a society, a Latin American society. Scientific Society of Agroecology. We have a large peasant movement. We have NGOs. We have consumers that, that support it because they understand that this is a is a revolutionary approach that does not fit the system. If what it wants is to change it dramatically, you know, and to create more socially just, ecologically sound, economically viable systems and culturally acceptable systems, and so. Um, that's that that's the only thing that, that that we can do we cannot you know people general meals use a generated agriculture and, and they and 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 but there you see the main emphasis for them is carbon sequestration because they want to get into the carbon markets but the carbon markets is basically just another tool that follows the same precepts of uh, of the industrial system uh, as Einstein said you cannot solve the problem with the same mentality that created it So if I want to change agriculture, I cannot use the same tools that created the industrial system. And, and I cannot continue with, the, um, with, the, with market economics as the my, as, uh, and profit maximization and unlimited e- economic growth as, as, as the main goal, you know? Because you see, when you do agroecology, when you do the real organic, um, you are capturing carbon as a consequence of your management. You're not doing that because you want to get in and to to catch carbon to get into the markets. This is logical, obviously. If you if you add organic matter to your soil, if you have crop diversity, you're going to capture a lot of carbon. That's a consequence of that. And then, the governments should compensate you for that service. It's not that you are going to go out there and sell your bonus bonus uh, and, and 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 your quota, you know, because you see. Um, I'm, I'm very much against carbon markets because um, I see um, the inequities, the, so- the social inequities in climate change that 60% of the greenhouse gases that have created climate change historically came from a few countries. More than 150 the countries did not have anything to do with with with, with, with the creation of uh, of the levels of CO two that we have right now in the atmosphere. And now those countries are the receptors of climate change. Look at, for example, Pakistan. You know, their contribution to climate change must be like 0.05 percent global emissions, and they suffer all these problems. So you have this 
receptors of climate change. But these receptors of climate change, like Latin American countries, like Colombia, where I have my farm, it's rich in biodiversity. And what the governments in the North want is to is for these countries to, to, to capture, sequester the carbon that is being produced over there. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 um, and that is in, unequal because, <laughs> you know, um, that's not the role of the South. You know, in order to solve the problem of climate change, carbon sequestration is important, but the main thing is to reduce consumption and emissions in the North, in the countries that are producing the, 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 the ones that are producing the most of the gases. That's includes the United States, Europe, and recently China, not not and, and India, but recently ten, the, in the last ten years. Yeah, yeah. Let me. It's very important. Let Let me um, ask you about uh, the Green Revolution. Um, I don't know that we've mentioned it yet, but I think it had a a pretty big role in. It was a it was a it was a moment of transformation uh, in Latin American agriculture for the worse or for the better. Let me ask you. Well, let's first think about the origins of the Green Revolution. Um, the Green Revolution was promoted mainly by by three foundations: Rockefeller, Ford, and Kellogg. Okay. With the, of course, with the support of the U.S. government, and their perception was that was a very Malthusian view of, of hunger. They said that the problem of hunger is that we have too many people, and food production is not catching up, and the way to close the gap is by bringing technologies from the north to the south. So what they did is, um, is they they created centers international centers, of which there are about 15 in Latin America, there were three, um, equipped by what I call innocents abroad, <laughs> scientists from the United States, from Europe, from Japan, who had good intentions, but they didn't know anything about the tropics. And they came from a totally different social so, socioeconomic background. And they came there with the technologies from the temperate areas to establish programs in the South, which were all based in increasing production through the development of improved varieties that were highly dependent on, on, um, on inputs, mostly irrigation and fertilizers. Well, it turns out that most of the peasants, they wanted to help the small farmers. That was the, the whole thing and to enhance their production. And what happened is that um, 20% of the small farmers in Latin America adopted the Green Revolution varieties, 20%. And similar figures in, in India, similar figures in Africa. And uh, that was a total failure, obviously. The ones that benefited were the large farmers whose, whose um, soil conditions and environmental conditions were very similar to the conditions of the experiment stations where they developed the varieties. So really, um, the Green Revolution, what it did is open markets. Just think about who's, these foundations, what are they involved in? Kellogg, cereals. Rockefeller, petroleum. And Ford, <laughs> machineries. Okay? So it opened huge markets for them. And, um, but it was a total failure in terms of helping small farmers. It also caused huge erosion of genetic diversity. Many local varieties were, 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 um, were lost. And more than that, the knowledge, because the Green Revolution, what it was, was not so much the change of one variety for another, but it was the loss of the knowledge, of, this, of the, the indigenous knowledge. And it's interesting because there was a professor here at Berkeley called Carl Sauer, who was a geographer, who knew a lot about Mexican agriculture and, and the Rockefeller invited him with, with uh, the Burlock team. You know, Burlock was the, uh, the, the, the Green Revolution geneticist that got the, the Nobel Prize. And he went with them to Mexico. And when they came back, he wrote a minority report. 
um, because this other guy said, yeah, we need to, you know, improve, we need to bring the high yielding varieties to Mexico and blah, blah, blah. And he wrote a, a minority report saying, if a bunch of Ohio and Iowa agronomists are going to bring their varieties to Mexico, you're going to ruin traditional agriculture forever. He predicted this. They kicked him out of the committee and the Green Revolution proceeded. So there were some red flags that were raised at that time. So it is very important to understand that um, the Green Revolution had a political agenda and an economic agenda. It was not just so much about helping small farmers, but it was more about bringing a model, a way of thinking, which was coupled with the fact that many of the scientists from the universities and from the, the centers of research of, of uh, developing countries were brought to do PhDs here in the United States. Um, when, when the Cuban revolution happened, um, the, there was an active, <laughs> an active program by universities to bring scientists and promote programs of research in, in those countries. For example, Chile, where I come from, um, the University of California, the Ford Foundation funded major scholarships for Chilean scientists to come to California to study. And then they went back and they duplicated and they replicated the model of fruit production and, or, and horticulture production. Chile is basically a California. If you go there, you'll see all monocultures of grapes and fruit trees and horticultural crops based on the California model. Um, Brazil, Peru, Colombia, all those countries were colonized by different universities, North Carolina State University in Peru, um, University of Florida, Brazil, to, for what? They would bring all the, I remember when I was studying in Florida, I did my PhD in Florida, all the scientists from Argentina and Brazil came to study soybean production. And look at now what is happening with soybean production in Brazil and Argentina with transgenic soybeans. So the Green Revolution was a way to colonize intellectually and technologically the, the, the region with by, by brainwashing all these guys here, giving them PhDs and sending them back to replicate models. Right. I was lucky not to fall into that, but <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of my colleagues did. Miguel, how did you avoid that? I know that you actually studied as an entomologist. I wanted to say that to people because you know, you really started as somebody who is working with farmers, not just politically and socially, but how do we make this work and grow a crop and deal with uh, insects? So, yeah. you know, you came from a very technical background. Yeah. How did you uh, manage to uh, drink the Kool-Aid without getting <laughs> crazy? Well, first of all, um, it's interesting because when I left Chile, because there was a military coup in 73, and a lot of young people left, and was one of them. I ended up in Colombia, and I had studied in Chile agronomy. And then I realized when I came to California that, that what I, I had studied in Chile was California agriculture. <laughs> but anyway, I ended up in Colombia, and when I, ended, when I went to Colombia, I was lucky to work with researchers. I was doing a master's. They were working with small farmers who were intercropping corn and beans and cassava and different things, different crops. And I had never seen in my life anything like that. You know, I was trained in monoculture agriculture. And, and then I, you know, I was surprised. Uh, I felt so unuseful <laughs> because all my training, it was not useful at all to deal with these complex systems. But I was lucky enough to, to work with people and I got, I got interested in, in ecology and anthropology and things like that. And then I, my thesis was to compare monocultures of corn with, mono, with polycultures where corn was intercropped with beans and see what happened with pests. And surprisingly, the pest numbers went down when you intercropped. So, oh, what's going on here? So that got me into, you know, first of all, having a huge respect for the ecological rationale of traditional farming systems, but then understanding that ecology was fundamental and that the reason why we had pests is not because these insects are bad, it's just that you create the conditions to, for them when you open monocultures 
But when you treat the soil with manure and when you uh, or with organic compost and when you uh, intercrop, you create opportunities for natural enemies to control the pest and so on and so on. And I was so lucky that when I finished, then I went to Florida and I did a PhD with a guy that was really open to these ideas. He let me do whatever I wanted for my thesis. I did a lot of intercropping work in, in, in Florida. Everybody thought I was crazy. And then, and then I ended up here in California as an assistant professor in 1980 at the Division of Biological Control, which is, was a bunch of entomologists, 11 entomologists, who were the, the fathers of biological control. Because in 1800, late 1800s here in California, there was a major pest called the um, cotton cushion scale that attacked citrus. And at that time, they were spraying all kinds of heavy metals and base pesticides and so on. And some entomologists at that time figured out that that was an exotic pest and there has to come from some country where, there, where it is not a pest because it's regulated by natural enemies. So they went by ship to Australia they found the pest and they found this big ladybug called Rodolia cardinalis, which they brought back to California by ship in little cages. They released it in California and up to today, they control the pest. And this division of biocontrol, which was closed later because of my university got involved in transgenic and biotechnology with corporate monies, uh, saved California $2, million, $2 billion in pesticide use, not taking into account the health and environmental benefits of that, just saving farmers $2 billion. Well, that group was closed when University of California Public University got millions of dollars from Novartis, from British Petroleum to promote biotechnology, biofuels, and things like that. Yeah. So that was it, you know, and... I survived that environment because, well, uh, after the division of biocontrol was closed, they put me in a different department. And, um, but, you know, if you're going to be in academia, um, you have to play the game. So the game was published, publish or perish. So I published a lot and they could not control me. They, they could not ne neutralize me. And um, they tried. As a matter of fact, um, some colleagues have told me they hate you, but they cannot touch you. So I was able to survive 38 years as a professor at Berkeley. And I always spoke out about the fact that we were a public land grant university and that we were, you know, that, 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 that they, the, the private monies were changing the research agenda in favor of private interest and that that was not the role of a public university. So I spoke out about these issues and, it has a cost, but I think I'm glad that I did it. it. It was important to do it. And then also, I was very glad to be able to work on basic ecology and basic agronomic research because it is fundamental to have very good understanding of the complexity of the organic and regenerative and agroecological systems. Because if we don't have systems in place that work, you know, that are well designed, well managed with the principles, there will be no, no food sovereignty. Yeah. That's the basis. You know, we need to train people in 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 these new ways. But this, but this is much more knowledge intensive than capital intensive. Yes. So they need to be trained in ecology very very much about understanding complex interactions and how to promote the processes that are fundamental for our agricultural systems to be resilient to climate change to be able to withstand all the all the stresses that 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 are facing today agricultural systems you know we see so many of the problems that we face and we see the solutions and we go this would be so easy mm -hmm. if as a society we embrace the solutions and we we also see and you've seen it very close firsthand that there are economic interests that do not want those solutions because they are actually based on giving us band-aids for the problems instead of instead of solving the problems. Um, exactly, and it's because of the reductionist approach uh, that has dominated uh, agricultural research. You see, we were very much influenced, unfortunately, 
by by a few a few um, s- philosophers and scientists. Uh, uh, one of them was Darwin, which actually Darwin um, was m- misinterpreted. But everybody said that the drivers of evolution was competition, and it turns out that in nature there's more cooperation than competition. But scientists went into competition. We got to get rid of everything that competes with a crop instead of, hey, why don't we promote what is going to cooperate with the crop? Yeah. And um, and and the cards, you know, that that talked about that you cannot understand the whole. You have to kind of break it down into pieces. And that's that's how our specialization started. You know, people became specialized in soils, in insects, and in this and that, and they never made the connection. Oh, maybe if I manage the soil this way, maybe I'm going to have less pests. Nobody talked about that ever. There was no communication between soil scientists and entomologists, for example, and the connections are so obvious. So um, we need to, agriculture, what it does uh, as a science brings this uh, holistic perspective, this systemic view of agroecosystems, understanding that everything is connected, that everything is interdependent. You know, I was reading, I haven't read it all, but I started the, a book about um, George Washington Carver, who was studying with some of the very first people who called what they studied ecology. Mm-hmm. And it was the beginning of that word. And that way of looking at our problems is still very undeveloped. As you say, we still still isolate and and hunt for a a solution of a piece and not see the connection and the connection. Yeah. We're, you know, it's like doctors where we treat symptoms and we don't treat the root causes and agriculture. What it wants to understand is the root causes of the problems. Why do we have pests? You know, well, <laughs> because, because there are many factors that are driving it. their root causes. The monoculture is the one of them. And uh, I need to change that because it doesn't promote, you know, habitat for biology, for beneficial organisms, you're putting too much free nitrogen into the system through with fertilizers, which actually um, promotes pests more than 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 anything. Um, it's interesting that in this country is not well known Chabousseau, Francis Chabousseau, who was a French scientist that came out with a theory called the trophobiosis. Uh, he was also marginalized in his, in his institution, but he said that. The reason why we had pest problems was connected to the way we fertilize our, our our soils, because when you put chemical fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer, um, it, it's so soluble that the plant is not able to metabolize all the all the NO3 into protein and amino acids, and you have a lot of free nitrogen. And when a little aphid or a homopteran insect comes, you know they reproduce like crazy. But if you do organic. Basically, what happens, um, organic management, there is a slow release of nitrogen, and all the nitrogen is metabolized into, into proteins and amino acids. You don't have free nitrogen on the foliage. This is something that he found in the 1960s, and we see that it's true. You know, There are some researchers that have done some research on that, the connection between soil fertility and pest problems, but very few, because it requires this much broader understanding, you know, it goes beyond your discipline and you need to understand the root causes rather than just the symptoms. So that's, that's what agroecology as a science and, and the way we teach it is, 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 is very similar to kind of holistic medicine in a way. Yeah. So uh, I have one more big question, but first maybe just a clarifying question. Um, we talk a lot about industrial agriculture. Mm-hmm. Could you give me your simple perspective or definition of what that means to you? What what does what is why why would you call some agriculture an industrial agriculture? Yeah, I think that industrial means that it doesn't respect the laws of nature and and treats soils and plants as a mechanical device. That's the mentality. Now, the form that it takes is a huge monoculture, highly dependent on external inputs, energy, irrigation, pesticides, fertilizers, tractors, large scale. That's kind of the, the expression. But I think that 
that is this mechanical view of of that 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 just it's just a soil is is a substrate where you grow these things called plants that are like like artifacts that you you put inputs and they grow and they the more inputs you put the more they grow and the more they produce and so on and so on so it's kind of an engineering type of approach rather than an ecological approach because you know when you're treating a piece basically a piece of agricultural agricultural field is a modified simplified ecosystem it's a live system and that's how you have to deal with it so this mechanical engineering engineering type of approach is what is the is this the, the the mind framework in which these people work in agriculture thank you that's very good okay so as we as we start to wrap up I'm I'm curious. I, I was just asked last night. I was in a conversation with Dan Barber, and um, and I was asking him kind of what did he think we could do? What what's the path forward? And then he asked me, and I was like, I don't know. You know, it's a tough question, and I, I don't mean to I I don't mean to put you on the spot because none of us really knows how we get to where we we see we might need to get to, but we don't know how. But what are your thoughts about uh, hopeful changes or directions to emphasize and keep working on? What, where do you get your hope? Well, you know, after 38 years working at the university, I wrote many books. I gave hundreds of conferences. I wrote papers. Um, I did a lot of research. I trained a lot of people. Um, I don't know. I was never able to grasp the level of contribution and impact that my work did. And after that, after I retired, my wife and I bought a farm in Colombia, a piece of land that we are transforming. We're, make, we're transforming it into what we call an agroecological lighthouse. And because it's going to irradiate hope, it's a space of hope, okay? And and by doing that work there, we connected with the local community, a poor town that has been neglected by the government, that is isolated because climate. there's so much rain that the roads have kind of collapsed. And we started a program with, um, with women and the, and, the, and the kids in the school to set up food production in rice beds. Um, and, um, and the impact that that has had is, is incredible. So what I feel is that all the ideas that we have crystallize at the local level. That's where you can implement them. And then what happens is that this, when you work at the local level and then change starts happening, um, that becomes like a lighthouse that can influence other communities. So now we have other towns nearby that have come. You know, the teachers bring their school children to the to the school garden, and they want to do one. And um, and so I think that we cannot change what's happening above us. You know, the, all the all the crisis that we're facing, the governments, um, the economic system, all that. I, I cannot change that. I cannot change policies. I cannot do any of that. But what I can do is I can promote projects that I can take their own life, and that creates a collective energy that perhaps. Many, many little local changes are going to lead to a bigger change. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's the hope that I have. And that's where I put my energy. Because your, your ideas of real organic and, and regenerative and all that, they have to crystallize somewhere in a reality, in a farm, in a community, somewhere, because you have to see how it works and, and what are the real impacts. So that's what I'm doing. And I mean, the few, I'm 72 years old and uh, this is where I'm going to put my energy in just working locally with local people. One, one little, we say huerta, one little garden a, a day and, <laughs> and see where it takes us. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Miguel Altieri. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to talk today. Well, let's share this with as many people as I can. Thank you very much, and we'll be in touch. Good luck with your project. All right. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe and share the link with your friends. Please take the time today to leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening to so that others can find us. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org and by following our YouTube channel. Please join us next time when our guest will be Real Organic Farmer Phil Foster of Pinnacle Organics. Phil is part of a cadre of California row crop farmers experimenting with reduced tillage and vegetable production. And he was among the 50 thought leaders that we interviewed to discuss the co-opting of regenerative and climate farming in our recent online symposia. You can find tickets to the recordings at realorganicsymposium.org.